Today's episode is supported by the Smarter E Europe, Europe's largest platform for the energy industry. It combines the four exhibitions into solar, EES, Power to Drive and EM Power Europe, taking place at Messe München from June 14th to the 16th, 2023. Learn more online at www.thesmarter.de. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm David Weston and joining me today once more is Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, we're all back together at last. Uh, hi Dave, good to be here. Uh, she's just come back from a vacation in North Devon, which is a lovely part of England. And I mentioned that in particular because there was a, a, a heat pump related um, experience for me. Um, there was a hotel that's more than 100 years old and had a ground source heat pump installed last year when we were there first, and it's now operating fully. Uh, and I could observe uh, its performance firsthand. It was very nice and warm in there. Decarbonization of heating is as important as any other sector in the energy transition, but it is sometimes perhaps a little overlooked. The sector's main tool to help remove carbon emissions from space heating are heat pumps, and the rollout of the technology is quickly gathering pace, particularly in Europe. Our guest this week is Thomas Novak, Secretary General of the European Heat Pump Association. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I have listened to so many episodes that I'm really delighted to be there uh, myself at once. And hi, Michaela, and hi, uh, Jan. That is very nice of you to say hello. Uh, Thomas, perhaps we could just begin, obviously, perhaps a little bit biased given your role, but can you explain a little bit why heat pumps are the best heating option, uh, particularly in Europe? when it comes to decarbonization of heating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think you're perfectly right, first and foremost, in saying that they, the whole heating topic was a bit late to the party. Um, why are heat pumps the best heating solution is actually really independent of my role. In 2024, we will, have, we will be able to celebrate 200 years of the conceptual understanding of heat pumps that was, uh, that was first discovered by uh, Nicolas Sadikano in, in France. And after that, it, it took 200 years to bring us to a mass market. And now we have these benefits that are energy uh, efficiency, that are the inclusion of renewable energy. Um, but they are also the contribution to stable electric grids because they provide flexibility. And so whatever I think about that, I think it's, it's really without dispute that from an energy efficiency perspective, it is the best available technology because you can take one unit of electricity to provide three, four, sometimes even five units of heat. And if you are able to make use of the cooling effect that happens at the same time, then the, the total uh, efficiency factor is even higher. It can go up to nine uh, if you add heating and cooling that you could use at the same time. So I think really heat pumps are the tool to close energy cycles in a European context for residential applications, for commercial applications, for industry, and also for district heating. Thomas, before we jump into more detail, some of our listeners may have heard about heat pumps. They may even have seen one, but many people don't really understand what do heat pumps actually do? And you refer to the efficiency of heat pumps. Can you explain sort of what heat pumps are in simple terms, why they're so efficient and how they work? 
Yes, I will refer to an example I have given in front of uh, 50 uh, 10-year-old students from the elementary school of my daughter because the teacher once asked me if I could not talk about heating and I said, well, okay, I, I will do that. And I explained it to them. And the, the, there's two, co two concepts, two effects that make the heat pump work. One is evaporation and one is compression. And everybody knows what that means. If you ever jump into a pool, you come out on a warm summer day and you're still freezing. And you're freezing because the hot water, the, the water evaporates from your skin. That takes energy. The energy is taken from your skin and that's why you feel cold. And then if you have gotten to the swimming pool by your bicycle and you come out of the swimming pool and you find eventually somebody has left the, uh, the air out of has deflated your bicycle tire, you have, to, uh, you have to pump it up again. And if you do that, you compress the air in the tip of your, your bicycle pump and it will get warm. You could also imagine that you, you compress the molecules as if you were to put a lot of people in a small room and you rub shoulders and that would give you uh, uh, heat. And this heat, if you can translate that into, can that transition that into a building, then you can provide it. And at the same time, if you are, if you are able to take the cooling part for cooling purposes, then you, you can use both energy um, services. And if that is not enough, then we could always refer to the fridge. Uh, I think the market penetration of fridges is something like 98%. Everybody has a fridge and you don't question whether that works or not. But if you look at the backside of your fridge, you see a warm part. And if you see the inside of your fridge, you experience every day that products, uh, the drinks, etc., are cooled. So the inside of the fridge is the outside of the heat pump and the backside of the fridge is your radiators, your floor heating system. And normally then people understand really well and they say, oh yeah, that's interesting. One important point, um, if we use the heat pump for heating and for cooling, the cycle always runs the same way. Sometimes people say, ah, we reverse the cycle. Actually, the heat pump is always providing heating and cooling and it's a matter of design which part of it we can use. Great. Yeah, really helpful in explanation there of uh, how heat pump, or what heat pumps are and how they work. Um, jumping into the rollout of heat pumps, uh, uh, particularly in Europe, but also across the world, we've seen a few markets where uh, heat pumps are really starting to, um, the, the sales of heat pumps are really starting to accelerate uh, and other markets where it's, it's not so high. Can you kind of explain why that is? Why is there such a difference? Uh, a variation across Europe, um, and what are the sort of mechanisms in order to help accelerate these sales of these uh, of these tools? Yeah, there's there's quite a few lessons that can be learned from tradition, from history. Actually, we have, as European Heat Pump Association, we have data that ranges back until 1990, when only a few markets were even big enough to count. Uh, the heat pump sales. And now we have data for 21 markets. And I'm getting that question quite a lot. Why are some markets more successful than others? And, and of course, it's a very good question because we may want to deduct from the answer what we should do in these different countries that are not as advanced yet. We have, um, we, we can say that it is it is the way the tradition people are heating is probably the most important concept together with the available alternatives. Why am I saying that? If you, if you look at the French market, it has been the leading market for the past uh, years and uh, has been really selling a couple of hundred thousand units every year. Uh, comparable markets, for example, Germany do not see the same growth and do not see the market, the same market penetration. And I think the biggest reason here is that France has always accepted electricity 
as an energy carrier, as an energy source that is not too valuable to you to be used for heating, especially when you do it in an efficient way as heat pumps. And hence, the 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 idea of using electricity for heating has been um, accepted. In Germany, with a big gas grid and with a very pronounced uh, boiler industry, it has always been pushed away from the end users. And people said, no, electricity is far too valuable to be used for heating. Let's use fossil energy um, because it's also, well, in the end, it wasn't fossil anymore. Gas became green and reliable. And so it was presented to the end user as um, not that bad a bridging technology until we have some real good solutions. And then we could look at countries like um, the, the Nordics, Scandinavia, uh, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Norway is really the hidden champion with the, was for a long time the market with the highest market penetration per 1,000 households. Uh, it has recently been uh, deplaced by Finland, but anyways, it, it is countries with very cold climates. So you can see that if you have a building tradition that um, puts a bit more focus on the building itself and insulates it to a level where you are not starting to cry every time your um, your heat heating bill comes in, then the heat pump is a perfect solution. And also in these countries, with the lack of available gas grids, with the lack of or with the political will to move out oil in the uh, in the context of Sweden and Denmark, then you see automatically that uh, replacing the alternative, which would then be a direct electric or district heating or biomass, uh, is is not or is is more favorable when you want to also not only save energy but you also want to save heating costs. So building tradition, um, the the way buildings are heated, and um, the alternatives, I think, are the biggest influencing factors because they influence in the end the economies of the choice of heating systems. I come in here, yeah. Well, my first question would be: you just described these different cultures around heat pumps and. Jan, probably you followed it as well, even in holidays. We just had some intense discussions about the future of heating in Germany. Um, and I wonder, and also Jan is super active in the UK, where also you have an equally uh, intense discussion. So do you also see cultural difference in the skepticism? Like, for example, is it totally accepted in Finland as opposed to Germany, given where they come from? Um, I'm asking that because obviously I'm interested at the EU level. And then my second question would be that you, if you still would agree, even despite the national, you know, different starting points, etc., that still at the moment, the legislation, which is the basis, like let's say the renewables directive, even in a just a great new version, is not necessarily incentivizing heat pumps, still not so you're still working against a background of of a piece of legislation of which the history is incentivizing bioenergy and fuels. Would you agree with that? Well, that was quite a few questions. Uh, let, let's start with the beginning, Germany versus the UK. And that is really interesting. I think, uh, indeed, Jan uh, is, is very active and very known and visible uh, in the UK, but also across the rest of Europe. And it is it is quite remarkable that we have the similar fight in Germany and in the UK. And if you come back to what I said before, that the tradition um, of the, the whole installer segment, the heating segment, is quite decisive. Then you see 
that both the UK, probably the UK even more than Germany, have a gas boiler tradition. I, if I remember correctly, uh, the UK is the biggest gas boiler market in all Europe. And of course, if that is what installers understand, that is what installers tell end users, that is what installer, what end users learn from their neighbors, because I think this is an aspect that we haven't talked about much, This the social, social aspect of how do you heat, then you're feeling perfectly fine in choosing a gas boiler. And I think that's why it, the discussion is so harsh and, and, and so agitated at the moment also for Germany, because we are really questioning 50, 70 years of, of heating solutions. And in, in the case of Germany, it's also very fast. I think in the case of the UK, people have accepted that there's a lot of talking from the governments, but the governments will really not execute it, right? That, that seems to me that, oh, government comes with another support scheme, another support scheme. It's not going to happen. And I do think in Germany, it was exactly the same. When the, when this, the current coalition came to power in 2019 and said, okay, you know, we will make it mandatory to install heating devices that include 65% of renewables. Most parts of the heating industry, they said, they, they will never manage. So, you know, forget that. We, we will not have to become active. And then unfortunately, COVID and the Russian war came, uh, interfered. So now time is really short. And, and the big debate that we are having in Germany is not about is it technically feasible or not, but it's also really a defense action of the fossil uh, oil and gas industry. Maybe not so much of the manufacturers because they will manufacture what the end user wants, but for those people that operate the gas grids, I don't know how often I've heard that we can't um, – we can't shut off the gas grids. And I don't know why we shouldn't be able to do that because most of them have been written off anyways, right? It's a long-term investment, but they are also operating for a long time. And we are in a situation where we need uh, we need a new approach towards heating and the new approach, in my opinion, is an electrified approach. And that's the same discussion that you're having in between the UK and uh, Germany. Now, you said, well, what about the Nordics? Here in Finland, I think the heat pumps are now really accepted, especially also because the big heat pumps can contribute to district heating. So you, the, the, the term heat pump is beneficial, independent of whether you look at central or decentral heating solutions. Again, there is competition between the market actors, but nonetheless, the, uh, the solution in itself is accepted. For the biggest heat pumps are operating in Finland, in Sweden, probably also the longest operating ones are in the district heating uh, grids of, of Stockholm and Gothenburg. It's often not pronounced very much. So you talk about district heating systems without talking about the heat source, despite the fact that actually without heat pumps, district heating wouldn't or would have quite some difficulties to become um, green. So, and then you said, what about the Renewables Directive? That's quite a jump now. But but indeed, uh, the Renewables Directive looked at, um, I think the biggest achievement of the Renewables Directive was in 2009, the integration of air, aerothermal energy as renewable energy source. Because that moved, that extended the potential of technology from geothermal and hydrothermal, which were niche applications, to this big and vast amount of uh, standing air around us and you still find it disputed that people say I, how can it work you know it's it's minus 10 how can i get uh, heat from that ambient temperature and that is only a, 
that shows a lack of imagination, you could say, because end users feel cold at minus 10, me included. But for a refrigerant, there's a lot of energy in minus 10 degrees Celsius. So is the renewables directive um, not ambitious enough or is it even counter um, creating counter incentives? Here, I think the renewables directive in itself is a very good piece of legislation. It has a lot of ambition. Um, now 40, 42.5, 45, whatever, you know, depending on how you calculate it. But we are above 40, maybe close to 50% of renewables that we want to achieve by 2030. Um, we still have this 49% of renewables in buildings. Uh, and we still have the definitions. We have now even included cooling, renewable cooling in the in the definition. So why is it not working? And my feeling is that, and we can say, we can see that it's not working because Eurostat is counting the renewable energy contribution and it shows continuously that the annual increase is below one percentage point where it should be, um, I think now I, I haven't looked at the latest data, but it should be, is it 1.8? 1. 1. Anyways, it's much bigger than, than one. Um, and what I'm seeing is that we are not putting enough emphasis on the implementation on the local level. And the Brussels hands are tight in that context, if you want, because Brussels can only make this directive and then it has to be transposed and implemented. And you see how long that takes because I was at an event uh, two weeks ago where somebody said, yeah, you know, um, in Germany, we thought that we shouldn't be so fast with this Gebäude Energiegesetz because we don't want to uh, to be faster than the revision of the EPBD and the Renewables Directive in Brussels. Well, now it took so long in Germany because of all this conflict around it that eventually both EPBD and the Renewables Directive have been passed on a European level. So before the German law is ready, they actually can start um, reviewing it again to transpose the renewables directive number three. So I'm not so sure that the, the directive is not ambitious enough. I think the implementation ambition on the ground by the member states is not ambitious enough. Well, I don't know, Jan, maybe also you will come in because Rob was also working on it, what I was referring to. So first of all, to clarify, when you were talking now, you were talking about a heat pump coefficient, right? When you were referring to those figures, when you said one point, I don't remember. Oh, no, no, that, that's that's increase the, the heating in renewable target. energy share per in yeah. heating, yes. Okay, yes. so, and it's precisely that the way that they count the heating target uh, is at the moment, since it's looks at what you put in is favoring the inefficient forms. And that's also no surprise yeah. that then you can get 80% uh, bio share. And I have to say, for me, the focus only on the overall target was therefore not fully correct, because frankly, if you don't change this incentive structure underneath, we are not doing rest to zero now for the next 20% by replicating this type of growth, especially in heating. And this has not totally been... True corrected, really. And even further, Jan's colleague, um, Jan's colleague actually uh, was, was doing nice work on it, Duncan. He basically also until now, and I'm still waiting for the final text, which isn't out yet, because I want, that's the first thing I want to check. Uh, it's, it's until now not possible to account the electricity that feeds a heat pump for the rest heating target. Yep. And all of this yep. has been corrected in the transport sector. So here, the transport sector has already been cleaned up. But frankly, the heating sector is not. But there might be an amendment in there that corrects this to a certain extent. If it, but I don't know if it if it was in the final agreement. So that's why I wait for this text every day. 
If I could jump in quickly and just because I think for our listeners, it might be interesting to get this um, completely clear. In the Renewable Energy Directive, you can actually count um, not just the heat that you deliver from renewable energy, but actually what you put in. So if you burn a lot of wood in an open wood fire where 70, maybe 80 percent of the heat just goes up the chimney and you never use, just goes out of the house uh, straight away, you can still count all of the wood that you burn um, and you you don't just count the 20 percent that you actually use. So it creates an incentive for inefficiency. And that, to my understanding, has not been corrected um, or at least not fully been corrected, which is a huge shortcoming. Um, but Thomas, I, I wanted to um, uh, perhaps come back briefly, if I may, to... Um, the points you made about you know, the sort of culture wars going on about heat pumps in Germany and the UK, and indeed now in other places too. If you look across the pond in the US, we're seeing very similar discussions emerging and in Canada. So it's it's really spreading. And, and I mean, from my perspective, it is spreading because we're not no longer just um, aiming for incremental change. You know, we're not no longer just, um, yeah, let's just have a few more units installed in some new homes or you know, some customers are very environmentally minded. This is very much now about a fast uh, accelerated transition. And that means a threat to a lot of people. And that's what the response um, that we're getting, basically. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you a question about um, the market growth we have seen um, last year, which was, uh, I think, unprecedented. And you done a lot of um, analysis. Actually, the European Heat Pump Association has uh, a website with a data analytics platform you know, on heat pump markets. And Thomas, could you just sort of talk us through what happened last year, kind of some of the highlights yes. um, uh, and takeaways? Can I quickly great. go on the on the previous part of, of this, the non-incentive uh, of the Renewables Directive? Because I, I fully agree to what you say about uh, the incentive for biomass and the non-replicability uh, of what we have done so far. It's, it would be impossible to achieve the same growth, the same insufficient growth, I may say, that we have seen over the past 10, 10 years, 12 years, uh, which is heavily based on biomass um, in, the, in the next 10 years to achieve these targets. And that, that then brings me also really, it, it addresses quite nicely uh, what you say, Jan, that this, it is a fundamental war because it's, it's in the past it was, it was, we had this discussion internally also with some of the um, heating manufacturers that said, yeah, but you can't argue against gas. And then I said, but if we are pushing for heat pumps, you must be clear that if we achieve what we want to achieve, eventually you will have to change your whole product portfolio because there is not going to be an opportunity left for fossil gas. And because this becomes clear now, and I think this is also the result of, of uh, realization that people say, oh, oh, this, this German government really wants to do that. And the, the Net Zero Industry Act uh, in Europe will, will push it. The IRA in the United States will push it further on the other side of the pond. There is specific uh, subsidies for heat pumps in the IRA that will also push the local market there. So out of a sudden, the fossil oil and gas industry realizes that if we think this to the end, we may be left with 20% of our sales in heating. And that is obviously significant. And is this going as fast as, uh, as, as we are saying, as we are anticipating? Indeed, 2022 saw a record growth of 38%. And I always need to say, because the numbers are going back and forth and up and down, we are counting 
Um, hydronic systems, air-to-water, geothermal and water-to-water. We are counting air-to-air for heating, and that is a very specific approach. We have a study from Italy where the Italians have asked uh, a couple of thousand households, what's the only heat generator in your house? And they re then they concluded that it was 9.5% of those buildings, of those people that were asked, that had only an air-to-air -air heat pumps in their house. So the air-to-air -air heat pump is not... Uh, in this case, an air conditioner, but also a heating device. And so we apply that, right? So just to be clear. And then we count also uh, air-to-water, sanitary hot water heat pumps. And if we put all this together, and then we compare year over year, then we have plus 38%. And that's important. I'm sorry, it's a bit lengthy and technical, but it's important to get the numbers straight. And then we have uh, we have top runners, which is uh, Poland and the Czech Republic. They they nearly doubled, or Poland more than doubled. Czech Republic, Republic nearly doubled. Now they they look great on the uh, percentages, but of course in absolute numbers, it's a different it's a different thing. Poland added nearly hundred thousand units. Um, uh, Czech Republic added by while doubling to uh, 30,000 units. So there is always also this difference between how much do I am I adding by percent and how much am I adding by absolute numbers. Italy, for example, in our counting added nearly 140,000 units, um, but only slightly above 35%. So what I find remarkable is countries like Italy, countries like France. France added uh, about 80,000 units and that was only plus 20%. So you see that even markets that have been growing continuously for a very long time still continue to grow, which, which is boosting the further growth. And if we compare again to the Nordic countries where this market penetration is so high, then we can say that most of the countries that we have in Europe are really only at the beginning of their growth curve. Big markets like Germany um, is is uh, really at the end, slightly better than the UK when it comes to these heat pump sales per 1,000 um, units. Markets like Spain are slightly better. Market like France even is is at a quarter of what we see in the Nordics. So I'm I'm still confident that the fear of the oil and gas producers is absolutely justified because eventually this notion that heat pumps don't work in renovation or heat pumps don't work in cold climates, that's, I mean, it's, it's just a defense propaganda fireworks, but it has nothing to do with reality. As you know very well, Jan, from yourself, I know very well from myself. Um, there are so many examples now. And eventually we will talk to people that say, what, what are you talking about? This is not working. It's perfectly working. And, and that will be the talk of town. If you, if you go to a dinner party in Germany, now you can be uh, discussing your heating choice without being punished for that as being completely boring, right? Everybody is interested in the topic and that will accelerate the development. Today's episode is supported by the Smarter E Europe, Europe's largest platform for the energy industry. It combines the four exhibitions, InterSolar, EES, Power to Drive and EM Power Europe, taking place at Messe München from June 14th to the 16th, 2023. Learn more online at www.thesmarter.de. We've spoken a lot about sort of the, the directives that the uh, EU has put out in the last few years. Recently, we had the Net Zero Industry Act um, published uh, from the Commission what has that done to help uh, the rollout of heat pumps? Yeah, first it has it has made a few people afraid that they could be left behind. I think that is that is the biggest impact that um, that it did. So um, the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think it's 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 a it's a 
Ping-Pong game between the United States and, uh, and the European Union. We, we came up with a Defense Production Act first, and that was for the first time that heat pumps were mentioned on a very high political level. And that, that was really something that was new to the European perspective, because as you may very well remember, Europe has always said, no, no, we, we are not picking winners, we are technology neutral. And obviously, we all know that whenever you want to be technology neutral, you're basically protecting the status quo. Now comes these, these, the, United, the Biden-Harris administration and says, no, no, we put heat pumps um, on top of the agenda. And then at that time, it became clear. And also, they did it quite, quite nice from a communications perspective, putting the heat pumps into the context of, um, of making Europe independent of Russian gas. So that, that was also new as a position. And that was picked up in Europe with an answer, and that was Repower EU. And then the United States came and said, well, we can even go further. And they said, we will now announce the Inflation Reduction Act. And that has significant um, support mechanisms for heat pumps, but also for heat pump manufacturers. So it's, it's a double whammy, if you want, from the perspective of I'm giving the end user money to, to fuel demand. And I am giving the persons that have to, the, the companies that have to manufacture the products money uh, and, and quite an, basically a limitless option to uh, to write off the investments and that's what uh, what um, what they confirm they say this is the numbers that are now floating around these what is it 380 billion us dollars that may actually be much more because in the end it's a tax credit so if the industry is investing more the the final benefit will be higher than this and then europe came or yeah, we can't say came because we're still discussing it with the Net Zero uh, Industry Act. And we, we still don't know how it will look like in the end, but we see that there is now a response that happens on the same level with, again, heat pumps mentioned and with which I find quite new and, uh, and unprecedented uh, selection of technologies that we think are the ones that should be pushed and should be uh, should be forwarded. And if, if you put all this together, what is happening on the member state level, because the growth numbers that I just mentioned are not only happening in the last year, they are also the result of, of years of support from the political um, area into the markets. Put this together, together with the, Euro the US ambition, together with the uh, European ambition, then I think it's quite safe to say that the energy transition will happen now also in heating and will happen much faster than we had imagined only three, four years ago. And and I'm, really, it strikes me a bit uh, that that you're so so critical to this renewables directive. Maybe I I have actually become a bit um, <clears throat> how do you say uh, calm and and uh, tired of that because we have li been living with that for such a long time that we thought, okay, you know, the renewables directive is one document, but really what's happening on the member state level may be much more impactful as we speak. Well, yeah, so the and, renewables and directive tells what the member state, how it counts for the member state as a target, right? So whatever yeah, the member true, states do. But it's also very technical. It's, it's statistics. In the end, you could say the, the whole problem occurs only because we have renewable energies separated from all other energy. I, I, I think that, let's say in 10 years, we probably 
will stop that. We will not count renewable energy separately anymore because that will be the energy form that we are using. Hopefully, that really, I hope that we can move to that and we can forget other details like the primary energy factor and so on. Well, I hope there's one step in between that we differentiate between bioenergy and other renewables, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we are fast enough, maybe we can leapfrog that step and just jump over, over it altogether. But I, I do agree. I mean, we, we cannot continue um, the, the, the integration of renewables in heating by just saying we will do this with, with biomass. And, and I think that's also very much undisputed by now. It's, it's not even a big discussion anymore. It will now take some time to implement it. Thomas, you mentioned national implementation at the level of individual countries. And Germany, we mentioned it before, goes through uh, that very process as we speak. Um, in, in a short amount of time, there will need to be a finalization of the building energy law that will define what will happen to new heating systems in January next year. Could you explain what's going on in Germany? Um, what's happening there? I mean, I've seen um, so much coverage in the German media, but it's also um, entered now the English-speaking world, and there's coverage of what's going on in Germany in, in Eurective, for example, in other platforms. But I think it's an interesting story that not all of our listeners may know because not all of our listeners will have followed that in, in that much detail. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let, let me try my best because I'm, I, I didn't read all the drafts and all the communication because it is really a lot. You're absolutely right. I, I would simplify it by saying it's fact versus propaganda. That, that's what we can really see. Um, all the people that are against this new law, they say, ah, you're, you're trying to ban certain technologies. The reality is uh, in 2019, so if you have been in the energy world, you cannot at all say that this is surprising or new to you. In 2019, it was, it was mentioned, it was announced that inside this legislation, the government will, will pass a law that will require 65% of renewables for all new heating systems. And then it was, it was questioned, is this really all new heating systems or only all new buildings? Can they really do this for renovation? That's not possible. Then the installers came and said, sorry, guys, but we can't do that. Our installers are not at all equipped uh, to install so many heat pumps because they also have to install bathrooms and, and kitchens. So it, it is really, it's, it's a debate and I would even call it a fight on the authoritative source of information for the heating sector. So who decides how this, how we want to heat in the future? And one group says, let's not change anything. Let's just keep everything as it is. And I would include this whole hydrogen ready discussion about that. I mean, <laughs> I think we should not invest more time in it because we have a very clear and, and uh, joint opinion on it. But what, what this hydrogen ready tells people is, you know, don't change. You can just do what you have done in the past and you do not need to pay more attention in heating. And the other part of the, of maybe society or, how is the split? It's probably not such an even split. But the other part of the argument goes, no, um, you want to, actually what we want you to do is to decide in favor of a beneficial heating system, but it, it is more than that. We want you to decide in favor of a building that becomes comfortable, becomes an active node in the grid, and becomes something that makes us all more independent from fossil energy, reduces CO2 emission, etc., what I'm thinking, what has been missing in the communication is that 
the government should have started by saying this is not going to be easy. You know, this idea of, of, of Churchill in the, in the war is to say, you know, my friends and, and compatriots, this is not going to be an easy operation. And all of you have to work together. And then I think what they should have done is very, very early on announce the framework conditions that would make it economically attractive to choose the, the heat pump-based system. And that could very well include a hybrid solution, right? Because that, that's what I would see is the very fast step to say, you have an existing gas boiler, Uh, just put a small heat pump next to it and then do the renovation, stage renovation afterwards. And I think that is that was, in my opinion, the biggest shortcoming because it not only, I mean, this this was, it is complex, a lot of mistakes can happen, but it was abused by the other party, by these people that say you can just do what you want and you don't need to change and it's going to be easy because you just take the same technology that you know and then you continue with that and afterwards we'll change the energy carrier that uh, that you're using in your house. But it was abused to create fear and doubt on the feasibility and on the cost. And if the government had said, okay, you know, we have we have thought this through and here is the cost situation, this will become better for you. We will take all the precautions to make this economically attractive. We will even help you in the beginning because it is actually also from the investment side quite a big chunk that you have to do to do that. Then it could have run smoother. And now everything has taken so long and, and obviously it's a, it's a democratic society, so a lot of voices have been uh, have been heard and rightfully so but that has delayed the whole process and now we are in uh, in april and it is 8 months and and then it should happen so i i understand the panic that some people have but i also see that uh, maybe some time was lost unnecessarily but let's let's say one thing then that is really important There was never a ban of gas boilers. And this this is the first thing that then I don't understand why it was left. If if I would have been the government, I would have said, okay, I have a communications department. This needs to be clarified because it, this is not a ban. It's a minimum requirement. You can call it a quasi-ban or a factual ban because it will be difficult for a gas boiler to uh, accomplish the requirement. But it, the gas boiler was never banned. Yeah, it's a performance standard rather than a ban. Exactly, exactly. But but this, without not clarifying that difference, and allowed, and I think you will agree, allowed a communication that 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 was more in a war situation. You're taking away my gas, my right for a gas boiler, and then then I mean you have mentioned uh, Michaela the transport sector. This all goes hand in hand. Transport. Brussels takes away the internal combustion engine from Germany and now comes the German government and takes away the gas boiler from the German uh, end user that, that can't afford all this. So, so it, it went to a level where the facts have been left uh, really at the outside, outside the discussion rooms. But Thomas, I have to say, in exactly this context, would like to remind you that you were recently using the word ban in the discussions on the F-gas regulation. And in a yeah. way, you were behaving exactly like the industry of the past when you did that, and you were equally misrepresenting the facts because, in as you just said, nobody was banning anything. Um, that's not exactly true in this context. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, and <laughs> I honestly have to say, it was mean. I anticipated. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. It's it is really this this goes to my heart because I have been I have been really also thinking uh, for myself: Do I want 
and and you know the arguments, right? The industry is lazy. The industry doesn't want to change. Uh, the industry wants to pollute the environment because it is lazy. And that's that is I don't know how much the listeners want to engage into the FGAS discussion. We have a number of refrigerants that we're using safely for years. Um, everybody has them again in their cars because that's the same refrigerants that now people don't want anymore. So I would love to see which company cars the people are using that tell me so clearly that we cannot use uh, the fluorinated gases. And by the way, I have an electric car with CO2 as a refrigerant, so I do know what is possible. But have I been misrepresenting? I am concerned that the current proposal, and I discussed that also with Bas Eikot, the current proposal of the FGAS regulation sets a time frame and sets uh, an ambition level that, in my opinion, with my knowledge from the inside of this industry, the industry will not be able to deliver to. Despite the announcements of some manufacturers, it's not the whole industry that is following that. And since I am convinced that the end user will not stop wanting to heat their houses, what's the alternative? So you do not get the heat pumps because, well, maybe we have been too optimistic and things didn't change fast enough. And then people will revert back to gas and oil boilers. So if if this would have been clear, and, and, and that's also my really my biggest criticism on the whole FGAS regulation, I think it is it lost scope. We should have said we want to reduce and remove eventually CO2 emissions from heating, right? Fine. So we take a systems perspective. And then we make uh, we first uh, we first look at what are we doing today. Seventy five percent is fossil uh, based heating, and this is not going away. Despite so you have seen some reports on the ISH, you have seen only uh, propane heat pumps. Yes, that's what you saw, but the sales numbers are still uh, predominantly oil and gas. So we should have said if we ban if we want to ban something, we need to ban fossil oil and fossil gas with a certain date, the same as it is now in um, in the transport industry. So say, by 2035, you ban fossil oil and fossil gas. And at the same time, you say, by 2035, uh, the refrigerants that we don't want anymore, and that's a political decision in the end, because they are used in quite a few application areas, we ban them likewise. But then you cannot revert back to an even more polluting solution because you can find, can't find the heat pump anymore. And really, if, if you see what's currently happening, the transition is ongoing. We are moving actually quite fast, but the challenge is also quite fast. Take, take this comparison of Germany. We want to go to uh, 500,000 heat pumps by 2024, so next year, right? And um, at the moment, these are not all propane. So if you now want to move to 500,000, that is a significant ramp up in manufacturing capacity based on existing manufacturing lines and existing refrigerant and existing technologies, components, etc., which are certified and people know how to install them. And now you say, okay, we do that. So we want to, to uh, basically double from uh, last year to, uh, to next year. And at the same time, you also change the whole refrigerant. I think you would agree that this is a challenge that if some of the assumptions that we're taking go wrong, we will fail in achieving that. And that's my concern. It's not to say we don't want to change or the industry doesn't want to change. I think if if for the industries all solutions were available for the manufacturers, it wouldn't be a big thing. They manufacture what um, what they what the the market buys. First of all, you didn't really you didn't really you couldn't counter that actually you used the word ban when actually there was no ban. 
And it's just, you were just criticizing so much other parts of the industry. And then secondly, I have to say, you sound a bit like hydrogen industry people that think upscaling their technology is an objective in itself. F-gas is a highly pollutant gas. And I would love to see you not on a letter together with Copa Kujica, the agriculture lobby that has, frankly, not a track record of green, to put it mildly, but rather that you follow the example of what we did for batteries. For batteries, we sorted it legislatively, clean stuff, sustainable batteries, and that's what we are scaling up. For PV panels, we are not bringing back the old stuff. We are, you know, we are doing it properly right now. Why do you see a problem in now fixing it before the big upscale starts? I think it's perfect because once you would have done all the wrong investments, then I would understand that you would be um, pissed off. But I also think it's it's not strategic because I'm pretty sure once that people have understood in Finland it's cold and the heat pump works, don't you think the fossil lobby will jump on this? You make yourself completely vulnerable with this F-gas if you're not taking active ownership on it. Okay, I think uh, I really think it's a it's a very complex topic, and I do I, I can let's come back to this ban first. So because you said I didn't re, re, uh, replace that, there is a very clear ban for the refrigerants that we are talking about in all monoblock units um, up to 70 kilowatts, right? And now the 70 kilowatts has even been uh, deleted. So that's a very clear ban. You will not be able to use that substance. Um, depending on, on which category you look at, it's 2025, 2026, it's 2026. So that's ban. You, no, it's ban. It's ban. It's done. Over. This, there is a ban. This is, not, this is not other requirements. This is basically saying you cannot use, you must not, you, you can, you will not. Fluorinated refrigerants will not be available for certain product categories. Full stop. There is a ban. And, and I repeat, what my concern is that With all with, with really all all developments that the industry is doing, and I have been involved in the Fraunhofer Institute uh, LC 150 project, which is a great project. Really, there is no doubt about that. But it's a project that can now say about 10 grams of uh, propane can give you one kilowatt of heat. And I hope we are really not losing our our listeners here. So so that's what you can get. This is not translated as we speak to mass market production. You can do that in a in a um, in a lab scale. You can do that maybe with a couple of thousand units. Maybe we can even do it with a couple of hundred thousand units. But we are on a level where the the increase is not uh, is not happening at the same speed that I think is needed for Repower EU. And I am absolutely happy to take ownership of that. And we have actually told that to the European Commission. I've told I said to them if you could. Um, combine the Repower EU increase with a support package for R&D and for market development together. Because you cannot only put an F-gas regulation out and say, okay, now let the market solve it. But as my, my good friend Dave Pearson always says, you leave the cookie jar on the table and then you say to everybody, but now please take the salad. It's great. So so I, I, I really, I, I am 
we are taking the ownership in that perspective that we have said we would like to see a heat pump accelerator and the heat pump accelerator includes a package that has R&D and the R&D package under the current conditions must include a part where we say how can we reduce the refrigerant uh, charge in each unit and that has to start by looking at the fluorinated refrigerants even if we can reduce them then we would do already something good to the environment but I repeat again Every heat pump that you install today is better than a gas boiler. So if I want, if my target is, and I'm not saying really the, the comparison to uh, to hydrogen, I think that is not doing us justice. We are not, we do not now care you're for insulted. a simple increase. <laughs> yes. Oh, well. <laughs> well, if if I can, if I could make the impact that that the hydrogen industry is doing, well, maybe it's it's actually a, compro, a, a compliment. But we, what we what we want is the good technology in the market first and not lose time about that. Because if I see how the new factories that are currently built and all the new factories or most of the new factories are actually using propane, but most of these new factories are also for small-scale applications. So they are for the single-family house, for the dual-family house. If you talk about multifamily buildings, it's much more complicated because even with the new standard, this IEC 6355, You will have to you you come to a level where eventually um, the charge amount will require additional safety requirements, or you have to move the product to the outside. If you move the product to the outside, you may encounter sound problems because some of the building requirements say you cannot have a heat pump that is too loud. Now I can only repeat what some people told me. They say if you uh, if you uh, move these propane units to the outside, it's going to be more noisy. So that you will immediately find people that say no, that's not true. We can make them more silent. But what everybody agrees to is that safety requirements and sound dampening will cost money. So then we again in a situation where you say okay, so I can do this for you: a propane heat pump outside 60 kilowatts. Um, at the sound levels that you require, but that will cost you the amount X. And then the investor says, oh, but um, wait, I talked to the installer. They said we can also have a gas boiler for the same purpose, and that cost me half. And now you tell me that everybody is so um, so engaged in environmental purposes that they will say we don't care. And that's why I'm saying, I'm not really, it, it is not rejecting change. It's really to say, then put the record straight and say, if you want the change, then make sure that the alternative of cheap and polluting fossil oil and gas is no longer available. Because then you will have the competition inside an industry that can compete for the best solution and can likely live with bans uh, for, for quite a few Maybe this is an opportunity to offer you a segue to a more comfortable topic, Thomas, um, at which... Um, I wanted to ask you about, which is barriers to heat pump uptake, because you talked a lot about um, the significant growth we've seen in Europe um, in, in the heat pump markets. But of course, we know that that's not enough. And we still have a lot of oil and gas heating systems installed. Uh, and indeed, in many countries, we still install every year more new oil and gas systems than heat pumps. And even new buildings often get connected still to the gas grid, um, or even have oil boilers. So what, what do you think are the key barriers? Um, we touched on refrigerants, but I think there, there are other um, barriers too that I think are worth exploring. In my opinion, the biggest barrier is still the cost side. And, and most of the things that I just said, they, they will disappear if this cheap alternative for fossil energy is not there. And hence, I think it is absolutely essential 
to use the tools that Europe is providing uh, to set the market environment into a direction, to gear the market environment into a direction that makes the heat pump solution the economically most attractive one. And that includes the possibility of going to zero via zero percent VHT, VAT, which is allowed now. That is, it would be mandatory to to review electricity taxation on each member state level and um, to use the opportunity that the electricity taxation uh, energy taxation directive uh, is foreseeing to to tax electricity the lowest and every other energy carrier higher than that. And then I think it is absolutely essential to overcome all these doubts with the end users because nobody has an interest in selling a heat pump that is then not performing. So we need these one-stop shops and they should be government subsidized. I think that is really an essential part of the debate. Let's say, let's say in every, every city of 25,000 people or more, maybe it's the wrong number, right? That, that be it 50 or 100,000, that doesn't matter, but have a grid, a network of um, one-stop shops where you, me, everybody, your, your parents, your friends can go and say, I would like to change my heating system. Maybe I would like to change my uh, the, the way I supply my house with energy and ideally then make it an active note in an electric grid. And then you get the, you get the advice that you need to be to to have to take a trusted decision and even uh, get advice on how to do the financing. And then we can discuss other things, you know, joint purchasing could be an opportunity, uh, heat as a service could be an opportunity. This, this could bring in other players into the change that is needed to rapidly upscale uh, the solutions that, that we have. So really, the economies of scale is, is one. Then the second thing, we likely will run into uh, supply chain issues, both on the installer side. So we really need to address how what we require from installers before they can install a heat pump. Do we need something like um, an installation aid? You know, somebody that has a lower qualification but can really help to bring in more capacity. Uh, how much can we do when it comes to the integration of uh, IT for centralized planning, these type of solutions, um, and then new business models? Flexibility is not getting enough of a value, but if we would be able to use the flexibility that heat pumps provide as a business case, as an additional income stream, that would actually help and make it more attractive for new parties like utilities, like building companies, and maybe even completely newer players that say, we do heat as a service, we rent heat pumps to you um, to enter the market. And if you take more integrated solutions across the value chain, where from, from planning to installation to financing, everything is offered from one hand by one uh, one provider. And of course, then it's not one, but it's probably 1,000 uh, across Europe. Then this could significantly increase the capacity that the whole value chain um, has. And then the last thing, uh, we we do need more production capacity, especially in the context of uh, of the FGAS regulation and the change that is coming. Because again, I'm not saying it's not coming. I'm saying it's probably taking more time to come. But we need uh, we need the support for these new factories to be built. And by surprise, I received a call um, end of February where one of the component manufacturers said, "I would love to build a new factory for um, for one of the components for heat exchangers, but I can't find um, enough." 
capacity, like a consulting company, engineering company that would build the factory for me in a short time. Because everybody wants new factories, batteries, um, photovoltaic, wind, and uh, electric vehicles, and also heat pumps. So there is actually a shortage at the moment in different parts of the value chain, one of them being how to build a new factory. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this, and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Thomas, I was wondering if, uh, I mean, you kind of touched on it there with the the need for more production uh, capacity, but we've spoken a lot about the sort of regulatory and political side of things and, and the attention that the heat pumped industry and the heating sector is having uh, from the from the regulatory side of things, but is the is the is the um, are the companies the the utilities perhaps the power companies uh, and and the manufacturers are they paying enough attention to this are they doing enough work in into supporting and trying to build up the the both the production capacity but also just you know developing the technologies and, and investing enough in the right areas. It's becoming increasingly difficult to answer such a question for all Europe because um, the member states have really different speeds. And also the utilities in the member states show different speeds in how they become active in the field. Um, some of the utilities, maybe I'm not naming anybody here because I may forget the others, uh, but some of the utilities have been active in developing new heat pumps. Some of them have actually been active in developing industrial heat pumps more than others. Um, they are all quite concerned now with grid stability and with the necessary build-up of grids. So I see activity and engagement. Um, some utilities have a dual purpose. They do electricity and district heating. So they have um, activities on both sides of the spectrum, really developing large heat pumps and developing and deploying uh, a number of small ones. Without going into any detail there, I think they, they have a really important a role in this whole context because they have access to end users and they pretty much know also how much energy the end users are using and they they take the important role of being able to send an invoice timely and uh, and accurately and that's something that if you talk about heat as a service for the future that would actually be quite an important qualification because you, Many companies can try to enter the market, but if you can't find the connection to the end user, then it will be difficult to be successful. So here I think that uh, utilities, they will have to engage and they are engaging now. I think we do what we can to uh, to push them further and to pick up the positive developments that we we currently see. And uh, in terms of sort of, uh, we've mentioned R&D and things like that, do you think the heat pumps that we're installing today are going to look like the heat pumps that we're going to be installing in 10 to 20 years time? Uh, is there a development in the tech? Is there a lot of kind of scope for development there? Um, and uh, something else you kind of just mentioned there, the sort of the reach in the c- consumer, do, let, do heat pumps sort of lend themselves to the digitalization of uh, electricity systems a lot more and, and people actually being able to show the grid, grid companies exactly what power they're using and does it lend itself better than perhaps the gas uh, boilers that we use today yeah well that's for sure <laughs> so, so, so this this is there, there i'm i'm fully supporting you and then i would say absolutely no the heat pumps of in let's say 20 years maybe 10 years is too early because 10 years means three 
development cycles that, that you undergo. So 10 years, they will pretty much look very similar to today with a significantly different share of uh, refrigerants just to embrace indeed as as Michaela has advised this change which I do think we do but so in 20 years I think heat pumps will be um, they will have much smaller refrigeration charges and that is an important point now you op opened the Pandora's box but it's it's really it's really the point so we will see they will they will be able to become smaller they will if they if the refrigerant charge is smaller everything else can become smaller so we can also live with a smaller materials footprint which is not an unimportant point if we discuss uh, how much um, resources we need for a heat pump they will much be, be much more integrated. I, have, I think I have said the word. I think the buildings need to become active nodes in a highly, highly renewables uh, electric grid. And if you think that to the end, then the heat pump will be an integrated part of, um, of a very smart exchange of information to use electricity when it is available in abundance and say, store it either in the building core or store it in batteries. So they will be smaller. I guess they will. They may look different because we see now designs where the heat pump integrates much more into the building core, maybe being very flat and being able to to be put up next to a wall, so that you can also uh, use them in in rather complicated renovation projects. And they will be smarter. So th this is what this is what I see. And then I do think that we will also see quite a significant number, which is really now a bit more invisible, of industrial uh, applications, both in industrial processes integrated, but also in district heating. And personally, I'm, I'm a very big fan of these neutral loops where you, uh, you put um, a colder and a warmer pipe into the ground, which eventually becomes a huge storage. And then you connect buildings to both sides of that loop And the heat pump is basically the connector between uh, the two and can provide heating and cooling to uh, to a building, to a hospital, to a mayor's hall, to basically every type of building. And so you have another um, energy source inside a city, which would then be very, very useful when it comes to finding energy sources for the renovation of multifamily buildings or densely populated areas in inner cities. And this type of heat pump is only now coming to market. It's really, it's something that is that is really much more small, much smaller. It's maybe a shoebox, it's a it's a, a an office bag or you know, they have this, they have really this size of your of your board uh, luggage for the airplane. Um and, and that's what we haven't seen so far and that's coming now. And yeah. Very significant change I, I see coming, but it's exciting. It's it's also something you, we see that there is Europe has quite a leadership role in that uh, context, and that's why it's also so important uh, to to be careful in what we how we legislate the development in order to keep that leadership in Europe instead of saying okay you know let's let's put the the brakes on today and uh, let's hope the market to solve it. I think the market really needs support for the deployment and for the mass deployment of heat pump solutions in Europe. Thomas, before we go then, uh, we ask all of our guests if they could look into their crystal ball. What does the energy transition, what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years' time? We've kind of spoken a little bit there on the technical side of uh, for heat pumps, what they might look like in 20 years' time. But um, perhaps you could give maybe a slightly broader view on um, what it looks like in your crystal ball. Well, in my crystal ball, that future in 20 years, um, maybe 30 years, will be by and large fully electrified and heat pumps will be an unobtrusive everyday 
component of this electrified and very efficient and 100% renewables-based society. I think we will see them everywhere where energy efficiency plays a role. Uh, it's really starting in cars. Um, the air conditioning units in cars can should be heat pumps actually or will be because battery management requires. You will find them in all types of buildings. Um, hopefully, we will use waste heat from buildings much more efficiently than we do that today because you, today, you see all the air handling units that we have on roofs today that are basically wasting energy and we should actually move them away and free the roofs for rooftop terraces and uh, reuse the waste heat for other purposes either in this in these neutral loops or in other parts of buildings or quarters so it will i am a very optimistic i'm i think i'm technology optimistic in this we will see um 100% renewables based system that is closing energy cycles and heat pumps are everywhere, but we will not see them anymore. Everywhere and sort of nowhere because they're hidden. Um, perfect. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today on uh, What Matters. Before we go then, uh, let's just go around the table quickly and uh, ask what caught my eye in the last week uh, or so. Jan, what about you? What caught your eye? For me, it was um, some new analysis done by Shell uh, that was reported in Energy Monitor. And they did something quite interesting. They looked at um, solar and wind and compared it to LNG and nuclear and sort of compared the growth rates once these technologies reached one exajoule of uh, energy contribution to the global energy system. And then how quickly did these technologies grow? And um, the numbers are speak for themselves, really, but it shows that solar and wind outperform both LNG and nuclear by far. And um, yeah, that's not in terms of capacity, it's generation. Um, and that that caught my eye and I shared it on Twitter, but I can also share it in the show notes. Absolutely. Yes, you'll be able to find a link to that in the show notes. Michaela, how about you? What caught your eye? Not energy related this time. I uh, went to see uh, in the preview the Into the Weeds, the movie about the Monsanto case. Um different topic but you know all lobby etc etc so it's kind of a different area and you you watch it and then they say um, we've lost 70 percent of the insects and biodiversity in the last 30 years and i'm like wow isn't that like also with co2 you know half of the co2 emissions we cre we created them in the past 30 years so it's like at some point while we were happy kids something just massively spiraled out of control in our system, it seems. So, yeah, I don't even forget about work in the cinema, as you see, but it is a good movie that I can only recommend. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll um, we'll find a um, I'll find a trailer for it or something and put that in the link uh, if people are interested to know more. Um, Thomas, how about you? What caught your eye? Yeah, not, uh, not energy-related or it's still energy-related because it was a headline that I read this morning, um, a comment on the the ban of uh, of internal combustion engines in You're Germany. coming back with the ban. Yeah, we're coming back with the ban. <laughs> but it was it was good because it it said uh, it said that well there will be internal combustion engines uh, on the market even in 2035 because we also have um, uh, horse carriages. Right, so th this ban will not 
ban a to- a one, se- one sector completely. And I think the same, th- that was interesting for me because I thought the same. We probably will have some combustion technology also for heating in the future. It will not change completely and it's not necessary to be changed completely. But we are at a point in time where the change will be much faster than we had anticipated. And I personally think, and that's what caught my eye on this point, is that we are running into a direction where some at some time in the very near future, people will ask themselves if they want to be the last people still using combustion technology, either for transport or for heating. So it may become socially unacceptable to use these technologies and you will want to move out of it fast. And I'm looking forward to that date. Uh, just on my end then, um, I saw it's a little, maybe a couple of weeks old now, uh, but it was an article in the uh, on the BBC website here in the UK. Uh, and it was a story about um, a nuclear plant in the Philippines, uh, which was completed in 1986, but was never um, it was never commissioned. It was never put into operation. It's never produced a kilowatt of electricity. Um, but now they're talking about um, opening it and actually starting to use it in order to cut the costs of electricity and obviously um, help reduce the costs of electricity for for the local population and, and across the Philippines with many people still really struggling to pay their electricity bill. And it's just that it was a, a debate about whether whether you can start up a 30-year-old nuclear power plant that's never been used um, and whether it's a, it's a good idea or not. And I just thought it was a really interesting topic given there is, there is still this um, slight contradiction in many parts of the world where people know they need to decarbonize um, but also they need cheaper, uh, cheap electricity in order to grow the economy. Uh, and it's that sort of difficult um, argument between the two, um, which I just thought really, really interesting. Uh, and whether whether it happens or not, I don't know. But uh, it, I thought it was an interesting story. Um, perfect. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter account. Uh, I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Thomas? I can be reached uh, either on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Thomas Novak EU. Uh, and Jan. I'm on Jan Rosenau. And Michaela. At Citizen Sale One. Um, my thanks to uh, Thomas, I guess, Michaela, and Jan. If you have any questions for the team, you can tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.